You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming Hello as a Hello and welcome to the What the Flick podcast. Yes, we are indeed talking about another Grinch movie, and this new one has a conspicuous lack of thorough Ravenscroft. This is my primary complaint. <laughs> well, he's been dead for decades. <laughs> That's I, hate, no I hate to break it. If we can have hologram Tupac. <laughs> Why can't we have hologram Thurl Ravenscroft? They, they barely even use Thurl Ravenscroft in Halloween is Grinch Night, which I saw for the first time this year, which is a TV special that nobody remembers from the 70s about the, Hall- about, about the Grinch on Halloween. And um, I think Hans Conried is the, is the narrator and singer and voice of the Grinch, as opposed to the Boris Karloff Thurl Ravenscroft split on the uh, old 66 version. Anyway, uh, you're Christy Lemire, you're Matt Atchley, I'm Alonzo Duralde. Welcome. Say, this is why. Alonzo was talking because it's uh, it's it's a Christmas movie and this is of course your your bread and butter. It is. It is my mince pie. It is. Um, so hi, thanks for being with us. Um, I am not an audio engineer, nor do I play one on TV. So I apologize for the the gross fuck uppery of last week. But we're all together. I blame Sabrina. Uh-huh. I actually do. She's so cute. Yeah, she, is. she threw me off my game. Uh, look, I've been podcasting for eight years now, and I still do it occasionally. So you know. but in case you guys are wondering, the thing I didn't do was plug my laptop into the soundboard. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what you did hear of us last week was just coming through the laptop microphone. Yes. So um, I think it's plugged in now. Is that plugged in on that side? Is that yes. plugged in on that side? Yes. Okay, yes. cool. So it's Christmassy, kind of, and uh, it's award season, kind of. It's a big mixed bag of stuff this week. We're going to play catch up with some stuff this week. Um, all of Los Angeles is on fire today. Mm, yes. Um, massive wildfires are going on. Right, there's a big fire by the zoo and it smells delicious. Oh, oh. my God. It's too soon, man. Sorry. My, um, my childhood neighborhood is the evacuation area. Oh, you grew up in a zoo? Yeah, no, Woodland Hills. Oh. So when you go all the way out to like far Woodland Hills, like almost Calabasas, Valley Circle Boulevard was my exit off the 101. And like that whole, like where my high school is, my childhood home is like two houses away from the evacuation zone. Oh, Malibu got Malibu, evacuated. Yes. Yeah. All of Thousand Oaks. Maybe we can get to the beach now. Too soon. Why, why must you always? I was going to say, just because you live in the valley, you don't really need, you don't need to get this dark about it. It's bad. Anyway, so um, hey, listen, the days are shorter, the time has changed. Uh, we are, but well, we are still here for you. So let us start out with some Christmas cheer with Benedict Cumberbatch as the Grinch in the latest animated tale of the Grinch, Alonzo. Yes. So this is uh, the second big screen incarnation of the Doctor Seuss character, the third adaptation, obviously. Beginning with the classic 1966 TV special. Um, this one is produced by Illumination, who are the people behind the Minions movies and, and uh, Secret Life of Pets. And so this is, uh, you know, it, it, they play around a little with the story, obviously, as you do when you are turning a children's book into a three-act structure movie. But I think it does so with a lighter touch than most people do, particularly when compared to the Utterly dreadful 2000 live action version uh, perpetrated by Ron Howard. So I had to go get my hair blown out yesterday at Dry Bar for mm-hmm. a thing I'm doing on Spectrum. Spectrum News Channel is a new thing here in LA, and I did a new show we're going to do there. And they were playing the Ron Howard Grinch on the flat screen TVs Ugh. at Dry Bar. Was it closing time? Was it time to make people leave? <laughs> it was like noon. It was like lunchtime. I don't Ugh. know why, but yeah, I just. It's so garish. It's awful. This one I found quite charming. And I I kind of went in very dubious because I'm not the biggest fan of the Illumination movies. And I really, 
Uh, I, I find them kind of charmless. I, I liked the Minions movie, but I don't care about the Despicable Me films at all, and, and I don't like those characters, and I don't find them amusing or, or entertaining. But I, I, I was really kind of taken away with this one. Uh, Cumberbatch is not trying to channel Boris Karloff. He's doing his own take on this sort of curmudgeonly character. We get just enough Grinch backstory to sort of explain him, and it doesn't feel excessive the way it did in the live-action one. It almost feels more like... They're borrowing a page from A Christmas Carol, which makes sense because, you know, Scrooge and, and Grinch have become almost synonymous terms now in talking about people that don't like Christmas. And, you know, look, yes, I love the 1966 TV special with every fiber of my being. But if we can have a million different Christmas carols, I have no problem with more than a few Grinches. And uh, I love the way this movie looks. I love Whoville. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that I wouldn't be surprised if people started having Whovilles in their house the way people have, like, Dickens Villages or whatever. Or you know? a manger. Or a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the new crash. Um, yeah, no, I, I, thought the movie was, I thought the movie was funny when it wanted to be funny. It was moving at the end when it wanted to be moving, and I had a good time. It's very slight. It's cute. It feels very stretched out and padded, right? Because the TV special is what? Like a TV special. It's 25 minutes or something. Right. This is... 80 minutes maybe tops and it feels like it's very much being stretched out um are you guys aware of how expensive movie tickets are i had to go see yes. I, I had to go pay yes. yeah so you guys saw it on monday night i had one million it felt like it um so if only there were a pass somewhere uh, uh, only to someone could have addressed it Anyway, I had to go take Nicholas to see it last night and pay for it like actual people. And I didn't realize that the showing we were going to go to was in 3D at the Grove. And it was $20 for me. For me, and sixteen seventy five for my child. It's I, fucking expensive. Well, I'm, I'm 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 not glad you had to pay all that much money, but I am glad you saw it in three D because I wanted to ask because I could tell even in two D there's a lot of swooping and a oh. lot of things that would make it sort of three D friendly. Did it? No, you didn't need for it to be in three D. And I quite frequently was taking off my glasses because it was those really big, heavy ones oh. that make everything dark. Expand. So, right. Those. So quite frequently, like the battery powered ones, like the kind where like when you put your finger in front yeah, of part of it. Of yeah, is that what it is? They're super heavy, like yeah. industrial goggles. I didn't know anybody right. still used those. They're, they're so that. bulky and, and they de- they totally deplete all that is wondrous about Whoville. Uh-huh. So quite frequently I would take off my glasses just to see what it actually looked like. And I'm like, oh there are colors. It's like <laughs> like the whole movie was in that like Sienna Sierra right. Instagram oh. filter. Oh. And it's Whoville and it should be vibrant and joyous right. and so Quite often, I would just take it off. And okay, do it well, then, then your numbers don't count. <laughs> you just it all wrong. <laughs> um, no, it is cute, it is slight. Um, I will say that I did find the last line surprisingly poignant for mm-hmm. these these troubled times that we are in. The, the line that the, the, the toast uh-huh. that he gives, yeah. it, is, it is very simple. But it is right. The, the right message for right now. Well, and, and there, there's one line that Cindy Lou Who says to him when, when he can't understand why the Who's are forgiving him that I thought was devastating. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, I don't want to overplay this right. thing. It's, it, is, it is, I mean, sure, it is essentially slight. I don't know that it's one I'm going to be running back to every December, but uh, I, I was trying to. Matt? I like this movie a lot. Um, to me, where it broke down a little bit was, I don't know that it was necessarily slight so much as when you see what happened in the Grinch's history, I thought, well, was he growing up in a different 
town because that didn't fit the like the like kind of the isolation didn't quite fit what it seemed like was going on in, in the present of Whoville. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I, I did like it. I you know I thought the relationship between him and Max was really cute. Um, you know, and then one of the reindeer, and, and yeah, I had a good time. There were a lot of laughs in this. It's fun sitting next to Dave White and hearing him giggle. Dave enjoyed this in the You did, yeah. yeah. I, I like this a lot. Um, certainly, uh, it was better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, there were a lot of movies that I saw this week that were a lot better than I had kind of expected. Um, but I had a good time in this, and, you know, I would have liked maybe a little bit more of the classic music. But I, you know, one of the things I was impressed with is there were definite gags in here that felt very much out of the Chuck Jones playbook, mm. right? I mean, very much like some of the like, you know, falling off cliff sight gags and the timing of it. And I thought that was a nice little. I don't know if it was an intentional. I have to imagine it was an intentional reference. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but just like definitely taking a page out of what Chuck Jones was really good at doing with his uh, kind of classic. Roadrunner, Coyote cartoons, you get a little bit of that in this, which I thought was really fun. Actually, my my least favorite part of this was when they did sort of dig back into the old music, but they had Tyler, the creator. Yeah, but there were other, and then there there were a lot of sort of musical choices that felt very kind of like the Christmas radio station that I turned away from, you know, like, oh, the Brian Setzer Orchestra and, you know, uh, uh, Buster Poindexter. But then other choices I thought were quite nice. Well, even run DMC, I thought worked well here. Yeah, <laughs> drop it in briefly. Yes. And, and this Grinch is very much the like wily coyote super genius type. Mm. Like he's this inventor type, which I thought was an interesting spin on it. Because otherwise, you know, previously he's just the Grinch is a bit of just this troll, right? Right. And that was a different kind of mindset. But yeah, I had a good time in this. Yeah, Nick liked all that about it too. The all the mechanisms and all of the the, the levers that you pull and yeah. things come down and it's things go up and, and yeah. yeah, and the dog is very cute. I like the Illumination movies. I like Secret Life of Pets. You know, I like the look of them, but they're a little bit off kilter and a little odd, but like pleasingly so. And uh, there is one character, one of Cindy Lou Who's friend, looks like a minion. Yeah. Is, is bundled up with a scarf and, and round goggles that look like it's a oh, weird, funny. Weird, I, thought it was, yeah. I, thought, I thought that character was a cross between Velma and Kay. Um, <laughs> right, the, the mouth is covered up all right. the time. It, it's a good voice cast. It's, you know, besides Benedict Cumberbatch, who does not sound like Benedict Cumberbatch. It's not smell here. It's right. not anything no. else he's ever done voice-wise. Um, Rashida Jones, King Thompson... Angel Lansbury. It's, it's, it's the role she was born to play, Mayor <laughs> Hoover. <laughs> well, she does play a mayor in, I think, uh, Sondheim's Anyone Can Whistle. So, there you go. Know. The time. Um, no, it's cute. You know, 5.2 is my number. It's it's lively. It's cute. I was not more a mean. I'm a mean one. But again, I I think, Alonzo, you're joking, but you're you're right that the fact that I had the 3D goggles on did definitely oh, yeah, no, that my would, That would crush my joy, too. Yeah, so I would say um, do not spend the extra to get the 3D. I didn't mean to go see it in 3D. It was totally an accident. Um, and unless your theater has the non-punishing glasses, in which case, maybe. Uh, I'd say 7.2. I, I really had a good time. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I go to the 7. Okay, our number is a 6.5. It's at 59% on the tomato meter. That sounds low, don't you think? Mm. Well, it's been hovering like it's been hovering right around 60. Like I was, I was kind of hoping it was it would at 
stay fresh, but oh well. Whatever. Stay fresh, Grinch. So, uh, so that is your uh, your your Christmas movie of the week. We had uh, the Nutcracker last week. We have the Grinch this week. Every week there is some. This is miles ahead. I agree. Yes. Yeah, if you're going to choose one November Christmas movie, yeah, no <laughs> I, I would do the Grinch first. Um, let's speaking of being timely, uh, we had an election this past week, and on the day of the midterms, the front runner came out. It was an unusual Tuesday film release. Um, this is from Jason Reitman. It is looking back at the rise and fall of Gary Hart. Now, for those of you kids out there who don't remember the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Hart was a senator from Colorado who was young and up and coming and idealistic and was the face of the future. And in, in 1987, it seemed clear that he was destined to be the Democratic nominee for president the following year. It's kind of the prequel to Bill Clinton. In so many ways. Yeah, in so many ways. And so um, he, it all looked good for him, but very quickly this sex scandal derailed his political career. And so this is a look back at a, a sort of a pivotal point in American history, in journalism, because previously reporters, you know, had kind of looked the other way at presidential dalliances, like what you know JFK yeah. notoriously right. serially did, which which was a subject that came up in the Post, where they talked about how being close to JFK and LBJ, right? Things Alfred Molina as the head of the Post, as Ben, as ben Bradley, Bradley yeah. as Ben Bradley tells the story, he's like, yeah, you know, so I remember when. Uh, LBJ got elected and he took us all aside and said, yeah, so uh, you're going to see a lot of women coming in and out of this room and I expect you to give me the same courtesy that you gave JFK. Yeah, you know, I never really thought of LBJ as like a womanizer, but maybe he was. Oh, um, hell yeah. <laughs> you should read those Robert Harrow books. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, it's, curl your hair. To be like, like, so to get another blowout. To, yes, thank to you. whip it out to intimidate other people. Oh, yeah. Like, okay. So at this point in time, though, so it's a Gary Hart had this fling with a woman named Donna Rice that he met on a yacht with the unfortunate name of Monkey Business. Everything is right there in front of him, and then reporters start getting wind of him having had this fling, and he does not understand why anybody should care. Why should it matter? Why is my private anybody's business? And so it becomes this turning point where, well, of course, now we know everything about people, and we should know about the private lives of the people that we're going to elect to be our leaders, especially if it is going to be the leader of the free world. It is totally relevant. At the same time, seeing it now, though, with Hugh Jackman as Gary Hart, it seems so quaint in retrospect, the notion that like a sex scandal can derail a career. I mean, look at who this nation elected well, president you know, three weeks or so after the pussy grabbing tape. Right. You know? So one of the things I liked about this movie is that the movie does do a good job of showing that Gary Hart was this somewhat different type of candidate in that he pushes back on a lot of the regular campaign type stuff, right? Like, there's talk about People Magazine wants to do a thing, and, and he's really resistant to that. He's like, look, it's about the ideas. It's not about the personality. He's got this fractured marriage with his wife, uh, Lee, played by uh, Vera Vera Formiga, Vera Formiga. who is always great. And she's terrific in this. And, you know, it's, I thought it was interesting in, so that when this scandal hits, like, first of all, like the flirting he does with Donna Rice, it's like, oh, there's a little bit of humanity in this guy. And they show that part of why he, I, I think the movie does a good job, and part of it is Jackman being as charismatic as he mm. is, that he thinks on his feet really well. And he comes, he'll take a question and really kind of turn it. And and I thought that that was relatively solid. Um, Except that he's doing it in that well, American accent. Yeah. Yes. That's, he's the greatest showman, though. He can I do any know. accent he wants. Right. The accent's <laughs> not great. But then, you know, I couldn't help but think, 
the irony and and the other thing the movie does I think relatively well is it kind of you know you get this bit about the bakers and how the sex scandal brought down oh Tammy Faye Tammy Faye and, and, and Jim Baker and how and this was you know Gary Hart was was simply the latest in a bunch of high profile scandals about married men stepping out on their wives and it was the first time that the especially the TV media really went after it because you had the rise of these tabloid shows like Inside Edition yeah, and a Current Affair and a Current Affair that were outside of kind of the standard broadcast standard journalism yeah. where a lot of those reporters had come up with the same kind of background they, and mindset. They were they, treating politicians like celebrities. Right. And and they were and you know, treating, you know, religious figures and, and anyone popular was fair game, yeah. right? For the gossip and or what was perceived as the gossip. And Gary Hart is fundamentally unprepared for that because he's already not playing the game. Like he already does it. You know, there's the story that uh, um, what's his name? The campaign manager. Um, J.K. Simmons. J.K. Yeah. Simmons tells about uh, Hart and Warren Dayton, mm-hmm. right? And Which I thought was a, a really telling story. And so he's unprepared for this, but then I couldn't help but think throughout this movie, I'm like, Gary Hart was the sacrificial lamb because at this point, like, it didn't stop Clinton. It didn't stop Trump. Like, you have to figure on a certain, like, you know, every day, Hart's looking at the newspapers and, and just the coverage of, Seriously? of, yeah. of Clinton and Trump and, like, God damn everyone. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why me? It's a bit of a bad timing, for sure. Totally bad timing, right? Well, and also, like, being a bit of a dummy. Well, but, yeah. But it's, the, the movie, like, I mean, it, it's it, the craft is very good. Like, it's a, it's a well-made film. I liked a lot of the performances. But ultimately, the tone of it, because it's very much made as a Trump era kind of, you know, treatise on politics and the media, the movie kind of seems to be clutching its pearls and saying, oh, weren't things better before we, before we delve into such, you know, uh, scandalous peccadilloes and how dare we... And it's kind of like, no, like right now the media is under attack by everybody. Let's not... How about we not make a movie about how the media should back the fuck up? You know, and 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 allow these guys their you know horrible private lives. It's like it just it it, it tonally tonally <laughs> it feels like the wrong movie for the wrong time. Well, also, what insight does it provide? What bite is there if it is intended as a satire? We don't really learn anything more about Gary Hart. He does not evolve in any way. Um, I thought Hugh Jackman was horribly miscast here, and part of that is that that wig he's wearing is oh, distracting yeah. and not doing him any favors. But somebody who is normally charismatic, as you say, Matt, um, he's just, he's angry. He's like world-weary. He's too old to be playing this up-and-coming face of the yeah. future. Yeah. And, um, and he's on, right, he's like, like Beto. Right, he's, <laughs> he's no Beto. But he's, he's on message, and he's angry all the time. Because he's under fire for this this affair. Yeah, he comes off as kind of petulant. Yeah, and all he wants to do is talk about you know his economic message, and uh, I just I, I never grabbed onto him as the idea that trying to put forth that he is he is the future, um, and that's a problem. I don't think you understand him any better by the end of the film, and were we supposed to? He's yeah. the central figure of the movie, and yet we don't understand him, really. We don't have a grasp on him. Yeah, I, I felt like the movie is trying to show tragedies for a few different characters, and the closest one it gets to is Donald Rice. Sure, yeah. Right? And, and you know, there's, there's some great commentary and some great reaction from the other women involved, 
like the one other woman involved in the campaign, and then Molly the, Ephraim, she's yeah, great in this, and then yeah. the one that's the post reporter um, that works at the post. That's like Ari Grainer, yeah, Ari Grainer, which I think she had some good lines too. Um, and all these dudes don't understand, like, well, you know, and, and you know, and Donna Rice is the one who really like her life changed in a way through she really becomes like, sacrificed she on the really altar becomes of, sacrificed like, and that public, can't, you know yeah. you get the sense that the campaign really like hangs her out to dry oh, totally, right? yeah. um, but it tries to make this tragedy out of heart that I think doesn't isn't really founded like it, it's not really justified in that like because what the, I what I liked is he gets the question like well you know if you're supposed to set the example you know basically like how is this setting an example right and he can't answer that mm -hmm. and you know that's where it all falls apart and I but yet the movie wants him to still be tragic about it and it's right. like no 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 show him like yeah you know what you messed up like you're, you can't be you can't claim the moral high ground and then try and you know either own what you've done and say yeah you know what I had this affair and we're open and that's who we are and it's or, none of your business and it's none of your you know or you know or yeah like yeah you caught me and I did the wrong thing and I'm I think yeah. part of the problem too, I'm sorry, part of the problem too is that the, the, the narrative structure of this, Jason Reitman is trying to make this sprawling, Altman-esque yes. kind of narrative where, you know, long camera work and... and Overlapping and, dialogue. Right, and the, the first, well, the opening scene really sets the scene very yes. well. It goes from like inside the TV news van out to the crowd at the Democratic Convention in 1984 on the streets of San Francisco. And he finds a couple of people on the campaign staff for Hart and like winds through the crowd with them and then goes back into the TV news van and then goes up to the hotel room. Like there's a lot of impressive camera work here. I, I see what he's trying to do, but I think that also that kind of intentional messiness detracts from whatever focus he's trying to achieve here, well, whatever bite he's trying to it, achieve. It here. would work better if the movie weren't waffling so much about what it even wanted to say about this incident in history. So uh, I would actually recommend that people watch, if you want to see how Altman did it, mm -hmm. go watch Tanner 88, oh, yeah. which was, he shot during this actual campaign on the campaign trail. He took his fictional candidate to all these primaries and interact with like real candidates and real media figures. And, and it really kind of, Gary Trudeau, who does Doonesbury, wrote it, and it really gets under the skin of how politics in America works. And it's everybody should see it. It's so great. One of the things... And I was wondering about this. Was the scene early on in the movie? I mean, I kind of like this the way the scene was written. The scene where his daughter's complaining about the friend's dad not wanting him to drive across country. Yeah, and I thought, is that the moment where she's kind of coming out to her? Yeah, I don't think she. I don't think she was coming out. I think she was basically talking about the fact that her girlfriend's father was objecting to the two of them sharing a room. But she seemed to be talking to her dad about it in a frank way that was like he already knew the score. And he was like, one bed, one bed, you know? Right. I mean, That's I, meant to humanize him, I suppose. I yes. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know, because there was this pause, and it was like, this... Oh, maybe it's the first time they talk about it. I don't know. It could right. be. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I want to point out, which kind of is, I think now needs to be a title card at the end of this movie. A couple weeks ago on Maddow, they talked about the fact that apparently on his deathbed, Lee Atwater admitted to having set up the whole Gary Hart thing. Like, he actually got them delayed by customs in Bimini so that rather than taking one boat they were originally going to be on, they were on the monkey business. Wow. He, he arranged for the famous photo of Donald Rice sitting in his lap, which is never mentioned or yeah. shown in the movie. I kept waiting for which that. Which I thought was strange. 
Anyway, but there's a whole other layer of weirdness to this story that the movie doesn't even address because I guess maybe people didn't know when they were making it. Well, I think the rights to that picture. Yeah. It does mm. sound like vintage of the Atwater, though, to pull off that kind of shit. Totally, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so um, also Vera Farmiga is great. Always. Um, so my number's are 4.8. Is it five and a half? Like, I admire what it was going for, and, and I like some of the technical elements and a really great supporting cast, people like Alex Karpovsky, you know, like like some a lot of fun character actors in there, but it just, it, 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 it kind of shilly-shallies about what it wants to be about, and then often when it does say what it wants to be about, it, it's like, it, it, I couldn't believe that somebody in 2018 is making a movie that suggested the mediation back off. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I like this a little bit more than you guys, but still, it's all over the place in you know, definitely a mess in a lot of places. I think this is. Okay, our numbers are 5.4. Is it a 63% on the tomato meter? Oh, speaking of... If you see one Ivan Wright movie, you see Tully. <laughs> or Jason Wright. Jason Wright. That too. Um, and uh, Mamadou Afi as the Washington Post reporter, mm, yes. who is kind of trying to navigate that fine line of, like, abiding by traditional journalistic notions, but also acknowledging that there's a big story right in front of him that he can't ignore. Yeah, the, 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 he, is, he is crushed by the elephant in the room. Yes. Um, okay, so let's move on to, speaking of being crushed, our souls were crushed by Nazi zombies in Overlord. Yeah. Matt, tell us about so it. So Overlord is uh, set during Operation Overlord, which was the invasion of Normandy, and uh, focuses on a group of paratroopers that uh, drops into German-occupied France, and their role is to knock out a radio tower uh, that is uh, jamming transmissions that would mean that the Allied Air Forces can't support the troops on the ground, and they have a very important mission that has to be done by pretty much 6 a.m. the next morning. And the movie shows us the terror of flying through all that flak and paratrooping in, you know, parachuting into occupied territory, and you know, they get close to their objective, and as they dig further into it, oh, sure enough, the Nazis are doing uh, horrific, horrific experiments on the locals involving uh, potentially coming back to the bed and making the worst possible version of a super soldier, and where is Captain America? When uh, <laughs> yeah, Cap did not get injected with right. this serum, thankfully. No, right. <laughs> Cap did not get injected with this. Uh, this was, I guess, somebody who worked with uh, the scientists uh, that uh, worked with Cap, and... Um, you know, you almost end up with another Red Skull. Uh, anyway, um, I really dug this movie. I went into this, like, really low expectations. And uh, this movie is intense and gritty, and it's a nasty piece of work in all the right ways. And well, it's a movie that established itself as a pretty great war movie before it even becomes a horror movie. Well, and what, I, what I liked was that this movie captured, this movie goes into the war footage and the combat footage mm-hmm. with the rhythm and mindset of the horror movie. Yeah. And this was, this, the opening scenes of this movie were terrifying. Yeah, right? it's intense. Off, in the plane, from the jump, the plane. literally from the jump. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I hesitate to compare this quality-wise to something like Saving Private Ryan, but the, the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan are so intense and so, because it's matter-of-fact and chaotic, and this movie does something different in that it takes the horror tropes in it, and it knows that it's trying to scare you, and it does that at every turn, and it works really, really well. Yeah, but before like it even enters into the whole sort of, uh, not supernatural, but I don't, whatever, whatever, the monster movie part, yeah, it, it, it figures out what's just terrifying about being in World War II. Right. And, 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 you know, you're in this plane and suddenly, like, it's getting shot at and there's 
fire breaking out and people are jumping out and maybe they're making it to the ground and maybe they're not. And it builds the tension. And yeah. And we follow one character out of that plane and you feel uh, that sense of vertigo as you're yeah. dropping with him. And then what happens once he lands is its own kind of terror, right. like with the parachute, he's underwater, and yeah. that's all shot really beautifully and vividly underwater. And, um, oh, yeah. Oh, looks. Nazi zombies. The door. You guys keep talking. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> so this was co written by um, the guy who wrote Captain Phillips and the guy who wrote The Revenant. Oh, really? Yeah, so there, there is life after Oscar bait. Uh, oh. yeah, um, Billy Ray, and I'm forgetting the gentleman's name, forgive me. Billy Ray Valentine? No. <laughs> Billy Ray, the guy who did Shattered Glass, remember? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. In case you guys are wondering, those were um, religious people knocking on my door. Oh, too. great. Um, I don't oh, my God, I should have brought them in. They might have been Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know. Um, they looked very polite. Were they wearing white shirts? No. Oh, so they weren't they were, Mormons then? No, they weren't Mormons. It was, a, it was a man and a woman, and they were both dressed like in like church attire. Oh, that sounds JW, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so I said, oh, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, Billy Ray and Mark L. Smith are the writers. Uh, it's J.J. Abrams' production. Yes, and directed by a guy named Julius Avery, who did a movie called, um, what is Son of a Gun? I don't know. I have not heard of anything he had done previously. Oh, a Ewan McGregor film I've never heard of. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah, so uh, this this is a, uh, uh, Bibbs reviewed it for me at The Wrap, and he said that it's the, he basically said it's the greatest video game movie that's not based on a video game. But it's it's tense, but not paranoia-inducing and, like, anxiety-inducing. Yeah, like video there game are breathers. Is, yes. Um, and there are people that you actually come to care about. The main actor, Jovan Adepo, is the, the main character. He's the son in Fences. Yes, he was really good in that too, yeah. and he's the main guy we follow okay. through the Nazi zombie hellscape. Right. Um, he is very good because he, he's he's reacting the way we would, you know. Yeah, totally. he's, he's terrified and just trying to survive. And and he's a character who, at the beginning, or we, we come to find out, like like won't even kill a mouse, you know. And he, but by the end of the film, obviously, he's having to deal with the situation in, in whatever way he can. Yeah, but they tell that story. I thought mm -hmm. he needs to call the guy from the. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Hacksaw Ridge. Right. Um, you know, and they, I, I liked the little detail of the fact that, like, the one black guy and the one Jewish guy in the platoon, like, or have each other's back, and they never really, like, shine a light on that, but you get it. You know where that's coming from. Well, the one from. black guy that survives. Right, yes, but, but nonetheless, the, 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 you could get why the two of them would be like, okay, we're, we're, we're about to parachute into Nazi Germany, let's like take care of each other, you know. And then there are other people they encounter on the ground there that they end up having to save, or they're all they're along for the ride, and that doesn't seem terribly mockish, like that's, it's earned drink, <laughs> it's earned with that, that emotion. Um, um, Matilda Olivier is the young woman, the young French woman. Who uh, evolves yes. as the film goes on? I mean, really, the only person we know here is Wyatt Russell. The only yes. actor you might have heard of, and you well, Wyatt Russell. Well, or if you were a Game of Thrones fan, uh, the guy that plays uh, Euron Greyjoy uh, is the Nazi lieutenant. Ah, um, okay, yeah, yeah. Wyatt Russell, who uh, I have not watched all of Lodge Forty Nine, but what I've seen so far, I've done. I don't even know if that is. It's an AMC show that he's on, and then you know, he was former hockey player. He's in he was in. Too. Goon 2, he was in Everybody Wants Some. He is the son of Kurt Russell yes. and Goldie Hawn. And he has some, they're at certain angles, he is Kurt Russell. Yeah, he has a lot of both of them. Yeah. He's got her coloring, but his features. Yeah. Um, he's very charismatic. Yeah, there's, um, the effects in here are pretty gnarly, you guys. Oh, the yeah. ways in which the serum uh, manifests itself yeah, in various people at various times is different for everyone. There's a little <laughs> bit of Lovecraft going on in here, too, yeah. right? Yeah. A little bit of like, uh, you know, is this the. Nazi cousin to uh, J. Herbert Wells. 
reanimator. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, if anything, this is almost a, like a reanimator style zombie reference. True. Yes. Right. Because um, you get the yeah. And so there's some stuff. I mean, this is a this is an R-rated movie. Yeah. And it's it's gruesome um, and gory and terrifying. But even if but even if you're not a horror completist, which I certainly am not, there's enough to have fun with here that you'll you'll want to see it. So um, before I went and saw it, I, I told Chris, I think it was the overload on Wednesday night, he goes, what's it about? And I told him it was about like, Nazi zombies. He goes, wasn't heavy metal about that too? Well, so there's a scene oh, in heavy metal. It comes up a lot. Right? <laughs> there's what we call shockwaves back in the 70s. Well, pushing. And, and I turned around, and, and this was actually farther from where this movie is, but I turned around and said, Bibbs, I'm like, didn't, didn't Michael Mann do this in the key? <laughs> right? the you, got, you got Nazis, yeah. you got zombies, why not make Nazis? Well, but yeah, the keep isn't Nazi zombies. The keep is like the, the Nazis holding on to this, what turns out to be this terribly, terribly haunted. Uh, Castle. castle that was built specifically to keep a uh, some terrible entity at bay, and they start screwing with the ruins. That like they let it out. Good job, Nazis. Yeah, it's good. I, I also was surprised. I did not have a whole lot of expectation for it. So there you go. So my number is a seven. Uh, seven and a half. Uh, what did I do this? Yeah, I I really like this. Um, and I went into this stone cold sober. I imagine after a couple of cocktails, Good this for is you. the best movie I've seen in months. I I don't know that I want to have a drink before Overlord. Mm-hmm. I think it's it might be kind of like vomit yeah. inducing. I was going to say I need my stomach to be. <laughs> I mean, not not just because the effects are grody, which they are. But they there's are. a lot of like you are there kind of motion sickness right. inducing stuff going on camera wise. Right. This is you know I was, I was describing this movie in my wife, and she's you know that how much how intense it was and it's this really solid really kind of exciting horror movie but not in a fun it's not like it's a a Sam Raimi movie it's not like it's not like there's laughs it's not cheeky it's not cheeky right like this is it's got the intensity of it's almost got like the intensity of say you know one of the first two Evil Dead movies but not but none of the humor right and you know and it's got this whole ticking clock thing because it's not like they forget about the radio tower that's still a very important aspect of the movie you know and so in addition to dealing with these like horrific monsters that are running around they're still going to get that radio it's just like another challenge like it's still a D-Day. <laughs> like, this is even harder than we thought. Like, oh, we got to deal with Nazis, dude. God damn it. Yeah, so our number is a 7.5. Or zombies. It's at 80% on a tomato meter. So, yeah, kind of solid, unusual November horror movie. Pleasant, unpleasant surprise. Yes. There you go. Um, so we have a couple more we're going to play catch up with. These are movies that came out, like, in the last week or so. Do you want to stick around, Matt? Stick around. Please do. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll have them. Okay, so let's start with Burning, which is going to be one of my favorite movies of the year. It's mm. excellent. Yeah. And it is from Korean auteur Lee Chang Dong. Yes. And this is a movie that when I walked out of it, I was in such a trippy headspace. I was, I was so mesmerized the whole way through, so disturbed. And it's such a, a weird funk afterwards. Like, you just don't want to deal with the outside world. Mm-hmm. And yet you also cannot wait to talk about it. <laughs> because there are so many different ways, I think, to interpret what really happens in this film. And I don't want to go into the detail of the possibilities of them too much. But yeah. I will say that whatever your answer is may not be wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, when, when we walked out, Dave was like, okay, so that character was supposed to be the United States, right? I was like, I, uh, I maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Tell me later on which yeah. one's the United States, because I don't know. 
The guy selling hot dogs. Um, so um, this is about a, a young man, a guy in his 20s named John Sue. He's played by Ahn Sue. And um, he is a recent college graduate. He doesn't really have a job. He's living in Seoul. He is a delivery guy. He's doing like part-time gigs here and there. And he runs into an old friend of his from his village. This young woman named Hamni, played by, oh shoot, I didn't write We'll figure it out. Um, and she is also doing what she can just to survive. You know, she doesn't have a real job. She's just cute and standing outside of the store, you know, selling stuff. And uh, they reconnect. He ends up having to go and take over his family's farm, which just happens to be right along the North Korean border. And his days are just kind of empty. Uh, Jung So Jones. So good. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, he kind of strikes up a romance with her. She kind of has ambitions, kind of. She, she wants to travel. She wants to travel. But I think she, she seems sort of like he is, kind of, kind of meandering. Yeah, without bearings. And, and then she, she goes on an occasion to, this is, this is not a high concept film, by the way, so I'm going to describe quite a bit here. She goes on a vacation to Africa, which she's always wanted to go. And when she comes back, and when she, he, he, she asks him to cat sit for her, right? And there may, there may not be a cat. He never sees the cat. There I'm may not sure be an actual cat. cat, but there's poop, and the food gets eaten. So, yeah. um, she comes back to the airport. When he goes to pick her up at the airport, she has a new friend played by Stephen Nguyen from The Walking Dead. And sorry and to bother you. you. And he is wealthy and cosmopolitan, and kind of got that carefree thing that really wealthy people have where just nothing's a problem nothing's going to bother them and like people are disposable and things are disposable and just go through life without uh, any words and he's always kind of mildly patronizing yeah I, I, I can uh, confirm that that attitude is awesome <laughs> <laughs> he, he can't even muster up enough like genuine feeling though to know that anything is awesome like he just sort of skates along the surface of, of everything and nothing really gets to him lives in this beautiful apartment. He has a Porsche. He dresses beautifully. And there's just, yeah, like a, a bearing about him of just like like carefree condescension. And increasingly, Jung Soo, who is an aspiring writer, gets entangled into a relationship with them both. And as the film goes on, we increasingly question what is really happening. Right. What is real and what is his perception of what is happening? It becomes a mystery. It becomes kind of a horror film, yeah. thriller in a lot of ways. And it is so beautifully, masterfully crafted. Like Lee Chang Dong will hold a shot for a long time, and it might seem like it's of nothing of consequence. It might just be, you know, this young woman dancing as the sun is going down. That sequence is so, so gorgeous. Great. So gorgeous. And in the moment, it may not seem to matter. And then you realize how much emotion, how much expectation of the world, how much is behind this seemingly, you know, simple kind of gauzy moment. Um, I was just blown away by it. And I kept guessing, even afterward, I don't know that I know what exactly happened. Um, the screening I went to, Lee Chang Dong introduced it, and Stephen Yuen was there afterward for a, a, a reception mm-hmm. thing with people. And I said to him, I said, like, I don't want to know what happened, but I want to know, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yes, he he told the director, Director Lee, he's mm-hmm. called it, um, 
this is what I think happens, and the director said, you're right, and that's their secret. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. He didn't whisper to you, like, at the end of Lost in Translation? No, and I, I don't want to know. Part of the fun is, like, you need to be able to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I the, oh, sorry. The, the, still it's, can. It's still, still can. Yeah. <laughs> the three-lead <laughs> three performances are great. Yeah, the cinematography is... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant to use the word gorgeous because that that's, feels like a cop out to talk about cinema. But it, it, yeah, this is a beautiful film to look at. But also, it adds to the sense of menace mm -hmm. in the way that the editing does, and the way that the sort of elliptical writing does. But yeah, you're right. You are left to figure out a lot of things on your own, which is exciting. And there are possibilities of what you're left to figure out that are horrifying. <laughs> um, but the movie never comes out and spells them out for you, so you're sort of left with, with kind of parsing out what you can glean from the information, how much can we trust this narrator, and all that other stuff. But yeah, this is a, a really fascinating movie, and I recommend you see it on the big screen, mm -hmm. because it is shot so well and so interestingly that you, that's going to get lost somewhat in the home theater experience. Yeah, and you, you could look at it, if you want to, just as like, an allegory for all times, you know, which character is the U.S.? I mean, right. at some point, you know, you have uh, the TV on in um, Jung So's kind of run-down farmhouse. You know, Trump is on the TV. Mm -hmm. They are very close to the North Korean border. Um, these things, these elements do add to the sense of, of menace, of course, although nothing really overtly shocking happens for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's... But, it's but slowly creeping. Clues are scattered throughout. We're like, what is that? What's in that drawer? You yeah. know, there's a lot of things to yeah. sort of think mm -hmm. about, like what's going on here. Yeah, I, I, I like this movie. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say this is my first Lee Cheng Dong film. It might be mine as well. Um, I need to go back and get caught up with him. Yes. So, yeah. so I realize we're, we're being super vague, and the conversation is going to be kind of short because there's so much that I would like to go into that I don't want to. Yeah. No. no to no, maintain the sense of mystery for you, Matt, do we keep it sufficiently vague for you? Uh, I wasn't listening. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, me playing the role of Ben Mendelsohn. As usual. <laughs> no. Uh, Stephen Yuen is just like enormously charismatic. He's really great in this, and and like charmingly menacing or menacingly charming. Yes. Um, yeah, he, he's very good. So um, my number is a 9.7. This is going to be higher on my top 10 list. Uh, I said 8.8. .8. Okay, so our number is a 9.3. It's at 94% on the tomato meter. Let's move on to a movie that um, you also could interpret in a lot of ways, yes. or you could just take it at face value. It's a bread factory, and Alonzo is going to describe to you all of the two-part, four-hour bread factory. <laughs> so yeah, this is a this is a two-part movie um, that is, it, it, it's set in a small town in upstate New York. Yes. Yeah. Um, and essentially, there had been a bread factory there that years ago was turned into an art center. And like most nonprofit arts organizations, it's a constant struggle to survive, a constant you know battle to keep the doors open and have enough money and, and all that stuff. And um, these uh, Chinese performance artists come breezing into town. And they want to set up their own sort of like new mixed media, you know, flashy razzle dazzle thing. And so the bread factory people have to kind of fight them and their like corporate handlers uh, and foundation people to sort of keep the money that they're already the the, the insufficient amount of money they're already getting from the city. Um, and then you know, so so that's mainly anchored by uh, Tyne Daly who is sort of the, the theater director there, and then um, her 
wife, who is played by... Elizabeth Henry McCarthy. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> who's terrific. And, uh, and so then things just kind of weave in and out of the film, like a Hollywood star comes to town. Um, an independent filmmaker played by Janine Garofalo has a screening there and has a very, like... Um, combative Q&A, which is a scene that I loved. Um, you know, we, the, the, there are, uh, you know, there's a waitress who is, who is recruited to become an actress because they're putting on a production of uh, Hecuba. Um, and then in part two, like, people start bursting into song and dance at random moments, you know. Um, but, you know, ultimately this is sort of, this is a film that is about, you know, the idea of community, the idea about public arts, and just about, um, you know, how, uh, you know, when, when, what, what opportunities are offered to people and what they do with them. You know, there, there, there's all these sort of sub-sub stories going on, like, you know, there's this teacher who's played by James Marster from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and, you know, he is getting into these gripes with the city council about, you know, stuff for the teachers, but he's also having an affair with one of the city council members, and, you know, and then his son is also involved in something. I get, there's, you know, it's four hours. They have a lot of things going on. <laughs> but it's very subdued. Um, Patrick Wang wrote and directed it. He did a film called um, uh, In the Family that uh, won some several Spirit Awards back in 2011. Mm -hmm. I have not. I have heard very good things. And he has a new film actually called, or actually a 2015 film called The Grief of Others that's also now being released as well. But uh, this is a really ambitious undertaking, and it's a smart movie, and it is, you know, it, you once you sort of settle into its rhythms, you really feel like you're, it, it, weirdly enough, it reminded me a lot of Monrovia, Indiana. Yes. It has a kind of Frederick Wiseman approach in that there's a lot of sort of these long scenes where you're seeing, like, city council meetings or play rehearsals. Or, and you're like, why are we here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, when you just have to kind of go with it and figure out at some point it's going to mean something or something's going to say something that, that, that goes. But in the but even when you don't know why you're there, like, there's all these really fascinating characters. There's this, like, nine-year-old kid who's the projectionist, you know, <laughs> uh, and, a, and a movie fan. You know, there's, like, all these different these fascinating people that kind of come in and out of the picture, but it all, it all builds to something. And it, this is one of the best endings of yeah. any movie I've seen this year. It is. Yeah. It's deceptive in the way that it sneaks up on you and all of these really understated individual scenes and moments add up to something that you did not expect. You did not, I think you don't expect the emotion that comes toward yeah. the end of it. Um, Brian Murray, I want to mention as well. He is the, for the elder statesman. Um, oh, the actor? Actor. Yeah. He's the master man in town. <laughs> and Patrick Wayne will just like hold on him mm -hmm. for a long time as he is telling a story or as he's performing a monologue. And increasingly, and you do have to see both parts. It is two individual films. You do, and I wonder if, if you're going to see at a theater, if you buy a ticket for part one, does it get you into part two, um, or do you have to do At, at the Monica, it was like two separate things. Okay. Like, like going to see Angels in America. Okay. <laughs> so, but you really, you, you really cannot see part two without having seen part one. Yes. Things do not make sense. Yeah. Um, and part Don't two, like but part two is also really different tonally. Like, it's the same setting, it's the same characters, but it has a much more theatrical kind of vibe to it. Yeah, people do burst into song out of nowhere, and it's hilarious because... The, the song and dance production numbers are depicted with the same kind of stripped-down aesthetic as you would get at the city council meeting. Yes. Or you would get with the lesbian couple just chatting in their kitchen or whatever it is. It's not like 
it all of a sudden becomes a splashy production number. It's like a bunch of realtors. It just breaks out all of a sudden. Song. Thing, or, or it's like a little coffee shop and people are tap ty- typing on their phones and they're tap dancing while they type. And it's, um, it creates, this is going to sound super corny as the words leave my mouth, but it creates the feeling that art is everywhere yes. and that we all could be artists. It's, it's in you. Yeah. The evolution with the waitress who becomes the star of Hecuba is just jaw dropping because she, and she's not great. It's not like that. A star is born moment where she takes the stage and belts it out and it's perfect the first time you see her evolution. You see her learning from the mistakes of previous takes during rehearsal. And then once the actual production happens, like a full-blown performer is in front of yeah. her. And like the moment where Tyne Daly's character is explaining to her like what acting is and how it works is just revelatory. There's another great scene like that with Glynis O'Connor, <laughs> a, an icon of the 1970s. You kids may not know who she is, but she was like she was an Ode to Billy Joe and like all these. She's you know the the made-for-TV R town like this just great sort of ingenue of the 70s who kind of disappeared. And she plays the editor of the newspaper, and she so has this, this scene with the kid who's the intern, who's the son of the James Marshall's character, explaining to him, like, why words are important and why, what the difference is between press release and press coverage. And just all the, these just all these nuggets of wisdom about how journalism works and how to write, and I was just like, oh, it blew me away. It, this whole movie reminded me of every mentor I've ever had, whether it's somebody who taught me how to write or somebody who, who said, you should read this book or you need to see this movie or whatever. Like it, it, it's about that spirit of, of broadening your, you know, imagination and your horizons and learning new things and figuring out like what's out there in the world that's beyond what you've decided that it's going to be. I, I really enjoyed yeah, this Yeah, and while it takes place in a very kind of mundane, like prosaic, small town, there's almost a fantasy element to the goodness and the 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 integrity and the level of possibility these people. Well, yeah, it, it's like an art film busting out of a Hallmark, Hallmark <laughs> Channel movie. Yeah, it's a it's yeah. It sounds daunting. It is. It is four hours long, and but once you watch the first half, you'll be dying gonna, to see the second. You're gonna want to see the second half. Yeah, I, I'm a little concerned. I've heard nothing. <laughs> it takes place in a bread factory. Yeah, I understand. So it's that, been converted. Nobody. It's, a, it's, it's a metaphorical bread. The bread is metaphor. Yes. It leaves crumbs for you. That and you then at follow. the end, you, you, are, you are sated. You have found something. You have found nourishment. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm saying 8.4. Um, it, it, it is slow at times. Yes. Um, but it's rewarding. Yeah, no, I gave, yeah, I gave it an 8.6. It, it, there are moments that you have to sort of be patient with it, but the rewards are well worth it. Yeah, our number is 8.5 then, and it is at 100%, you guys, both halves. Yes. Both both part one and part two are each individually at 100%. Both halves of the loaf. Yes. So you this can, whole movie gets 200%. You can mm-hmm. have your bread and eat it too. So um, 8.5 for that. And then you guys happen... so good today. Yes. You guys happen to have the pleasure of missing the girl in the spider's web. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything I heard was kind of... Now, I, I, I'm guessing you guys aren't going to play catch-up with it anymore. Nope. Okay. Well, don't. <laughs> I, I, I have seen it, and uh, I, I won't even do a whole full-blown review. I will just say that... Um, I You'd don't... Be better off being bitten by a spider. No, you know what? It just, and I really like Claire Foy. Mm-hmm. I really do, and it's a it's 
It is in keeping with the Elizabeth Salander we know from Nobu Rapace and from mm-hmm. Rooney Mira. I mean, it's aesthetically, canonically accurate, you know. She's got the tattoos and the hair and the motorcycle. and. But it's not based on a Stig Larsson. It's not. It's like oh. a whole other book. Remember, remember like the, how the other people were writing James Bond novels after oh, Ian Fleming yeah. died? Yeah, some other guy's been writing these books and apparently, like, kind of taking a left turn from where they were before. Right? Yeah, no, this, this is that. Yeah, okay. it's one of those. So it's like Moonraker. Yeah. Right, like James Bond's space. I think that actually was Ian Well, <laughs> right, but the Ian Fleming novel has, all, has zero to do with right. I have, so many, I have so many questions when I walked out of it, though. Like, I, I won't even bother going into the whole thing, but there's a scene where she has to flee her industrial loft, her high-tech, fortified industrial loft. She's got this really cool motorcycle, and she zips out past all the police, you know, right through them to get out of her burning loft, whatever. And she's going one way on the road, and the cops chase her, and she turns around and goes the other way on the road, and the cops are chasing her, and she seems to have nowhere else to go. And then she sees there's like a pier going out to a frozen lake and she zooms off the end of the pier and rides on the lake on her motorcycle. And it's like, you have an ice bike. You've had ice bike all this time. <laughs> and you're like zooming back and forth playing cat and mouse with the cops. Just you've got freaking ice bike. Just go ride on the frozen lake. So things like that annoy me. Gotcha. <laughs> well and, and somebody pointed out that like, you know, as as talented as Fede Alvarez is, like could he please make a movie in which a woman's rape was not a key plot element? Mm, yeah, he also directed Don't Breathe. Yes. yes. Um, which we liked. Yes. That was tense. Um, and he did the remake of Evil Dead, which I thought was pretty good. Okay. Anyway, I, um, I'm, I don't have enough, a number, maybe like a four. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would not go see this one. I would, mm-hmm. I would go back and uh, rewatch. Also, Vicky Creeps is in this. Ooh. Way too briefly. Uh. She is um, Mikhail Blumquist's uh, supportive girlfriend. She, she, she's Robin Wright. Ah, does and, she make toast? Yeah. <laughs> no. If you get Vicky Creeps in your movie, you want her to make toast. Or crepes. Oh, or oh, the whole You want her to make asparagus, but with oil and not butter. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's not good, and I would not even recommend it. So, good, no, goody, really. goody for you boys if you all missed it. How did you guys end up missing it? I was going to go <laughs> on Sunday, and then a friend was in town, and we took her to dinner. So, but... oh, okay. and, and all the advance word had been so lukewarm. I was like, mm-hmm. uh, for the horizon. Four came out a few months ago. What did? Forza Horizon 4, which is a racing game. Oh, okay. Um, you're, not, you're not playing Red Dead Redemption? So no. No, there's minimal racing in that. The last video games are playing more racing. Gotcha. I, and I only know about Red Dead, Red Dead Redemption because of billboards everywhere yeah. for it. No, and I don't have, I hear, by all accounts, it's a great game. And I don't have time to devote to a game like that. And it was a running gag on this week's South Park. Ah. Oh, Which this week South Park, by the way, was interesting because they actually kind of apologized oh, yeah, for, for man the man bear pig. Also, Lakeith Stanfield's also in oh, as well, but he does not get to do that much either. Get the Chief the Truth Speaker. It's a forty-seven percent on Tomato Glenn's badge right. Don't go see it. All right. So um, to recap for you, The Grinch we give a six point five. The Front Runner we give a five point four. Overlord we were all pleasantly surprised to get to seven point five. Burning is great, um, 9.3, and a bread factory um, requires some patience, but it's an 8.5. Next week, 
Matt's going to be in New York, but we're going to try we'll to try. we're going to try to expand our technological we can, possibilities. We can here. barely handle being in the same room. I don't know. How, I mean, not not that we don't love each other. Case scenario, we're, we're, we're going to handle recording each ourselves in the same room. All right, we'll just put the phone up to the mic. <laughs> there That'll you go. Work out really well. So, but next week though, we have more big stuff. We have the Fantastic Beast sequel. We have Widows, which is excellent. Um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, you guys both saw. I would like to see because I you can't. I can't imagine missing a Coen Brothers film, so sure. I got to see it too. And uh, Green Book got bumped up a week. Did you guys hear that? Yeah, there's, oh, a, right, there's yeah. a premiere tonight. That I gotta oh, there was supposed to be a showing of it. Well, yeah, there's one Monday. I'm seeing it Monday, which means I have to. Re- I'm missing a screening of the Russell Santa Claus movie. But you know what? But there's did, another one. They invited me to the premiere. Did they? Because I emailed them and said, "Please tell Alonzo." Because <laughs> it's a Christmas movie. About that movie. It's called yeah. A Christmas Chronicle. Yeah, Kurt, Kurt Russell, Russell is Santa Claus. Kurt Russell is. It would be Santa. awesome. We need to call John Carpenter and do Escape from the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> like, that would be awesome, right? Snake Plus and Snake Plus versus Elves. Oh my God! So yeah. Anyway, so November continues um, unabated with all of its possibilities. But thank yeah, you I'm guys. In New York next week, seeing screenings. I, I will try. So we'll we'll make it work. Yeah. All right. We'll do Dixie Cups and a piece of string. Yeah, we'll figure it out. So thank you all for sticking with us. And if you're in New York, uh, say hi. Where are you going to be? Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll be staying at the Times Square. Pass offices in Chelsea Elmo. and probably going by the Empire State Building. Uh, Okay, well, you see the one guy in all of New York in a Hawaiian shirt, yeah, that's, exactly. that's Matt Ashby, so that's how you know it's him. Exactly. All right. idiot. Thank, thank you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.